Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we're talking about the Vuelta Espana, which just wrapped up with Primoz Roglic winning his third consecutive overall title, as well as a few other races that give us a little window into how the world championships in two weekends might go. We have Britain going on now with Woot Van Aert, Julian Alaphilippe, and the Benelux Tour, which wrapped up also this weekend with Sonny Cobrelli beating Matej Modric in the general classification. Those two guys, my takeaway is those two guys look very good. Also, Tom Dumoulin looks something close to back. So that's pretty interesting as well. But first, if you want to support the podcast, sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition that comes out uh, minimum once a week, uh, more than that during Grand Tours. Uh, if you love the podcast, you would love that. Sign up for that right now. There's a link in the show notes, and there's a paid edition that comes out daily during Grand Tours and also breaks down every major race and also offers discounts to select brands like Stages Cycling, Fast Cat Coaching. You get 20% off training plans if you sign up for a paid membership. So if you're interested in that, go to beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, the Vuelta, I just sent out the post-Vuelta wrap-up newsletter. Primoz Roglic uh, won this thing by a huge margin, like 440, or sorry, four minutes and 42 seconds over Enric Moss. Uh, so at first glance, you might think, well, he just he just dominated this thing. What is there to break down? This thing was a snooze fest. Uh, n- not not totally how it was. If you, if you really dig into it, I mean, Moss had him kind of step for step just with a few, not bumbles, but the way Roglic normally wins is he just like slowly bleeds you to death. Um, there's this opening time trial, 7K long, where Roglic took 18 seconds from Moss. And that was actually, Moss was the best general, the, the best of the rest, really. Um, a lot of other GC guys lost 20 to 30 seconds. And people might write that off. Kind of the theme that I came to is yeah, a lot of pundits will write those early time losses off. Um, it's just like, oh, well, that's the opening time trial. We'll get minutes in the mountains. But that doesn't really happen anymore. You know, that's not really a thing in modern cycling. So um, to get back to the point at hand, we'll get into that later, the rest of that later. Um, Moss kind of marked him pretty closely. You know, he was only, he bled a little bit of time on these uphill finishes. He lost some time to time bonuses, which is how Roglic normally wins. Over the first week, he lost only 25 seconds to Roglic, which is really good, and 10 seconds over the second week. So um, he's theoretically in it, you know, still in the hunt going into the third week. He gets absolutely blown out, loses over four minutes to Roglic in the third week. Um, A lot of that in the final time trial. And uh, Jack Haig gets third off a pretty, pretty interesting ride. Another thing I found when I broke this down is Haig um, had a terrible first week. You know, he's losing tons of time throughout the entire first week, but the stage seven, it's his first summit finish and Haig gets in the breakaway and erases like two minutes or over two minutes. So he kind of undo, undoes most of his losses from that first week. That's kind of an interesting thing to think about too, because, you know, as I said, the, the stage one, I feel like the first weekend where, you know, like at the tour, you had these uphill finishes, you know, Carapaz was already losing time there. It was obvious that Pogacar, you know, when you're just chipping away 20 to 30 seconds on stages like that, whether it be an, a short opening time trial or, you know, a, a punchy uphill finish, that's real time. That matters. You know, most Grand Tours now are decided by, you know, one to two minutes. So if you lose 30 seconds in the opening weekend, that could be a quarter of the total gap by the end of the race, quite, quite realistically. Um, and some Grand Tours like the Vuelta last year or the Zero last year were decided by less than a minute. So that's significant time. But what Haig kind of shows is, is Almost if you lose enough time, you can't lose time because you're out of shape. You know, I don't I think Haig 
came into, if you remember, he had this bad crash the tour. I think he came into this race maybe a little rusty. Um, definitely with good fitness. Yes, you have to have good fitness to ride to third overall to Grand Tour. There's no disputing that. You know, but maybe something wasn't quite clicking for him. He wasn't quite into like top racing gear in those first few stages. But he he almost lost so much time that he could get into the break on stage seven and undo the time that he lost. It's an interesting theory where you know most riders get stuck in this in between spot where they're you know 20, 30, 40 seconds down. No one's going to let them into the breakaway. But Jack just lost so much time that he could get into the breakaway, and he, it ended up kind of coming out even by the end of seven stages. Um, it's probably not a replicable strategy, only because Jack Haig was such an unknown that no one was going to mark him out of that break. You know, he, he just was kind of flying, was using the fact, flying under the radar, using the fact that he hadn't had a ton of great results throughout his career to do that. So not something that I would, I would recommend just to lose a bunch of time in the first week if you're struggling to like, you almost dig yourself out of a hole. You go all the way through the other side and come out. But it, it certainly worked for Haig. It, it was kind of an interesting thing to, to see breaking this down. The big conclusion I came to is time trials are, are so important. I would say underrated, you know, which is funny because we talk about them. It's not like no one talks about them, but when the favorites are always rolled out, like the potential winners are rolled out for a grand tour, I feel like Time trialing is is really an undersold skill, especially when you have a contender that is so good at it. You know, you think about the 2020 Giro, Teo Gegenhart, not a particularly great time trialist wins that, although he did have a very strong, um, there was three time trials in that race. I think his, his final time trial was very good. Um, and Egan Bernal, I, I think it's actually a little bit, he's a better time trialist. As we saw at this, at this Vuelta, he was one of the best. I think he was like fourth in the final time trial, even though he's almost two minutes behind Roglic, but he's a pretty good time trialist, but he wins that 2019 Tour de France, not time trialing that well, but just just good enough. And that's kind of the key here is you don't have to be world-class as Bernal shows, but you have to be minimum very adequate. You, can, you cannot be bad at them. And when you have someone as good as Primoz Roglic or Tadej Pogacar, you have to be very good. To put this into perspective, uh, no one besides Pogacar or Roglic has won a Grand Tour that either of them have been at since the 2019 Giro d'Italia. And this is mainly because no one can quite crack this riddle. Uh, these guys are so good at climbing, arguably the best climbers of any race they're winning, but also the best time trials. So where do you gain time on them? Uh, no one's quite figured that out. And Moss is a gr- uh, kind of a great control here because he rides this Vuelta about as well as you could ask someone of his level to do. Um, and just gets absolutely blown out in this final time trial. You know, he loses two minutes and four seconds to Roglic in the final time trial. So even if he had, let's say, stage 17 got a little funky. Uh, I said before those stages that they would be, that nothing would happen. Uh, 17 was definitely more exciting than I thought it would be. I, I didn't see Bernal. I did not think he would attack before the final climb. He did. Um, that's what caused... You know, him and Roglic only had about 40 seconds on the chasers by the top of the penultimate climb. And this is that we've seen this happen before. This is exactly what happened when Chris Froome got away. I believe that was stage 19 of the 2018 Giro d'Italia. He gets away pretty far from the finish, goes over the climb about, it was about 30 seconds in front of Dumoulin, who, who makes a decision not to chase. He, he says, you can, t- you, can t- you can see him make the decision on the road. I'm not going to chase. 
room by myself. I'm going to sit up and wait for the rest. Um, but they creep down the descent and the ensuing flat valley, and they lose minutes to Froom in that time. And that's what happened here. Roglic and, and uh, Bernal go over the, the penultimate climb about 40 seconds behind the chasers. In theory, they should just be able to pull them back in on the descent and the valley before the final climb. Roglic and Bernal are in trouble then because they've just used all this energy to pull a gap that is neutralized before the final climb, and they're, they're either hanging on or they're getting dropped. But in practice, that's not really what happens. I'm not quite sure what is going on. It was maybe the, the rain, the weather was bad, but Bernal and Roglic kind of just carved down this wet scent. They're definitely taking risks. Bernal almost crashes. Roglic is taking a huge risk since he could just be back in the group, playing a lot safer. But So they lose about 15 or 20 seconds on the descent alone. They get to the valley and you get this situation where no one really wants to chase him back. Uh, Movistar is not going to have, they only have Moss and Lopez in the group. Neither of them is going to sacrifice themselves for the other one to chase Roglic and Bernal. So you just get this stalemate and the gap balloons in that valley. By the time they get to the final climb, the gap is like like around two minutes. They, they actually do the climb slightly slower or about even with the Moss chasing group. So while there was big gaps on that stage, the gaps are not happening on the final climb. They're happening before that. As we saw, stage 18 is kind of the flip side of this, where you know, there's not a ton of action before the final climb. Uh, Roglic finishes a few seconds in front of Moss at the top of the summit. And he, he just pulls out a few seconds with a little sprint. And that's how most uphill summit finishes or stages that finish with a summit finish are going to play out. And it almost, it's kind of counterintuitive where you'd think a summit finish would blow things up, but you almost get the opposite where everyone sits in. It's so predictable. Everyone knows exactly where the decisive moment of the race is going to be. No one really wants to attack from a long ways out. The only reason Igor Mernal was willing to do that is he does not care about finishing on the podium at this Vuelta. It was win or bust for him. So he's fine taking that risk, but 99% of contenders are not going to be fine with that. So the summit finish provide like a super predictable set piece that everyone can wait for. And once they get there, they're all so fit. No one's pulling minutes out of another rider on a summit finish. And these, these guys are so fit. They're all at such a high level that it's fairly even when it's a one climb race. Where it becomes uneven is when it's a multiple mountain attack. And that tends to happen on stages where there are not summit finishes because you can risk more in the middle of the stage knowing that your gap is not going to get chewed up you know, on a sustained 40-minute climb at the end. Um, stage 20 was a lot more exciting than I thought it would be. I, I thought for sure this was just like, you see this a lot where it's a Liege-Bastogne-Liege style course in the middle of a Grand Tour. It's always just one for the breakaway. The GC contenders sit in, nothing really happens. Um, that's how it started. And then Ineos blew it up. They had, they just burnt the team up with like 70k to go, setting a hard pace. Bernal attacks, gets dropped. Adam Yates makes, makes the, the front group. Uh, there's two Bahrain guys, Jack Haig and Gino Mater. Gino Mater is just driving that thing. Anyone not in that front group is done at that point. You know, it's like a, a, t- a 20 second period that defines the entire stage. But once again, that stage could be slightly more unpredictable because it was all just mild climbs sprinkled throughout the entire day. There's no one point you can circle on a map and say, well, I just have to make it here and then this is where the race is going to happen. Um, it was just kind of an unpredictable, all-out effort the entire day. 
The big notable thing from stage 20 is Lopez misses the split and then drops out of the race. It's not clear what happened. Um, it's, it's differing accounts from the team and him. He claims the team told him not to chase because Moss was up the road and they didn't want to bring Bernal back. Um, you could see that happening. The only, my only thing is you got to make that move. Um, there's really no excuse for it. Once Yates went and Roglic goes with him and Gino Mater's up there and Jack Cade goes and Enric Ingr- Mas goes, you have to go with him. If you can't go with him, it's because you can't go with him. Um, and I think that's what happened. I think it was just, he didn't have the legs to follow. Um, Bernal clearly didn't have the legs to follow. And Bernal kind of said as much. You could see him talking into the radio as soon as the split happened, tell, probably telling them to, don't wait, to not wait for me. Um, not that Adam Yates would have done so. A uh, couple, couple interesting things about this. I think Ineos played this uh, t- the complete wrong way. I think there's no way that they should have let Adam Yates get up the road, drop Egan Bernal, because what happens is they get to the final time trial. Bernal is a pretty good time trial. I think good enough to, in the alternate universe, to leapfrog both Haig and Lopez and get third place. So Ineos blows up his chances to do that, to send Adam Yates up the road. Adam Yates, the problem is he did drop Jack Haig on the final climb, and then he kept sitting up because he just wanted to win the stage. He was not really focused on taking time on Haig that would have allowed him to potentially finish on the podium. Um, but he was never going to win that stage over Primus Roglic. Primus Roglic is just better at uphill finishes than he is. So it kind of mirrors the Ineos, this Ineos strategy problem that they've kind of had all year where they just it feels like there's no overarching strategy. They're just riding every day. Um, whatever comes to them, they take. Instead of if they just would have gone to this Vuelta and said, well, we're just trying to get Bernal on the podium and that's our goal here, they probably would have done so. Instead, they walk away with nothing. Um, not a great look, especially after that tour where the strategy was even weirder than where they were basically just controlling the race for Tade Bogacar. They get Carapaz on the podium, at least there though. Um, the Vuelta, this Vuelta is a real low point where you come with the Giro d'Italia champion, and he never really threatens for the win, I wouldn't say at any point. Um, didn't really look at his best. It's hard to tell with Bernal because he's, n- he's never really had to race against the two Slovenians, Roglic and Pogacar, who are the two best Grand Tour riders in the world by quite a long shot. So it's hard to know exactly how good he is compared to them, but to get wiped by Moss, um, not a great sign. Not a great sign at all. It is notable that he did have COVID after the Giro, so this was his first race since getting COVID. He looked not as good, but you never really know with Bernal. He kind of has these funny things where he'll go home, he'll overtrain. He, he, he does not seem to be great at like preparing for races in isolation. He always seems to kind of overcook it, and he's never quite never quite where he needs to be when he gets to that race. You know, let's just assume that stage 17, he doesn't attack. Bernal doesn't attack. Um, Roglic and Moss and Haig all finish around the same time in the summit finish. This race really comes down to the time trial. And this is like a theme. If you look back at Grand Tours, time trialing is the way to win them. You want to, you want, this is how Chris Room won for Tour de France's and how Bradley Wiggins won one and how Garen Thomas won one. You want to, Gain time in the time trial, defend on the, in the mountains. And this, like, it's, I hesitate to call it a rise of time trialing because this is how Miguel Indurain was winning tours. This is how Lance Armstrong was winning tours. This isn't a new strategy, but it feels like maybe after Armstrong, this was lost a little bit where 
Contour came in and won a few tours. People think he won them with climbing. He kind of did, but also in 2009, you remember he won the final time trial. Um, very good time trialist. It perhaps used to be more isolated to the tour, where uh, the Giro and the Vuelta were races, were grand tours, where um, you look at the 2015 podium, it's Fabio Aru, Rafa Mica, and Mika Landa. I mean, those are some of the worst time trialists in the sport. Um, and, and that could happen where you would have these shoulder grand tours where non time trialists could win or finish on the podium. That is gone. Um, and you have enti- like an entire swath of, of contenders, of, of people who used to be contenders that are just no longer in the conversation. Um, I think of like Miguel Angel Lopez, who um, there's been a bit of lag there, I, I feel like, amongst teams and media where he's still considered some type of uh, potential winner. He hasn't finished on a Grand Tour podium since 2018. Um, Mikael Landa, another one of those, he hasn't finished on a Grand Tour podium since 2015, that Volta that I just mentioned. Um, these are not contenders. I, I don't know why the media still construes them as being potential GC contenders. I mean, Landa did get fourth at the 2020 tour. That's pretty impressive, but he was a long ways. It, it's really impossible to imagine him winning a grand tour with such a weak time trial. Same thing with Lopez. Um, it's probably a bit of it, probably there's a bit of a mirage effect where that entire 2020 tour, since the time trial was at the, at the end, that it appeared as though he was closer than he really was. He gets to the time trial, he loses something like six minutes in the time trial. So um, unless they're going to start doing grand tours without time trials, these guys can just not, they cannot compete. Um, And I think it breaks some brains because the evolution has happened so fast where, you know, as recently as 2018, Lopez was considered a potential tour winner. Think of Naira Quintana, think of I mean, even Fabio Aru, but these guys have just been the just chess pieces have moved so quickly on this board that they are no longer factors. Egan Bernal potentially falls into this. I hesitate to write him off, though. I mean, he won the Giro this year, so it would be absurd to say he can't win Grand Tours anymore. He is a pretty good time trialist, um, especially when he's on form. But but. It is hard for me to imagine him, especially after seeing him at this Vuelta, winning another Tour de France. Um, I, I wonder if that 2019 Tour will just be you know, an impressive win. Think of Marco Mentani, probably the best climber of all time, wins one Tour. You know, It's hard to win the Tour without a really, really strong time trial. Um, I think Bernal will win more Grand Tours, but they will not be the Tour de France. Um, it's it just pretty clear at this point, the way to win multiple Tours or back-to-back-to-back Grand Tours like Roglic just did at this Vuelta is you have to have a strong time trial. Um, That's like, it should be talked about way more than it is. Um, And and don't fall into this trap when you hear, you know, someone loses 30 seconds in the opening time trial to another contender and they say, oh, we'll just wait for the mountains. People are going to take minutes. I just, you hear this all the time. When we get to the high mountains, Bernal is going to take minutes. It just does not happen. It, It does not happen. The only example that I can think of recently is that stage 17. That only happened though, because Bernal was willing to basically sacrifice himself for Roglic to launch him. And Roglic gained the time on the descent in the, in the valley. He did not gain the time on the climbs. One other thing I wanted to touch on is Yumbo clearly tried a new strategy with Roglic here. Um, Roglic in the past has just come out and blitzed early stages, early summit, not summit, uphill finishes. We saw this at the 2020 tour uses the team a lot. The team burns through a lot of energy controlling the stage so that Roglic can sprint for the win and get time bonuses. 
but he has had noticeable declines in third weeks, probably because of the strategy. We saw at this at this Vuelta, they, they gave up chances to win stages and take time bonuses early in this race. Um, the flip side of that is he was flying in this third week. In that final time trial, he was a machine. Wins the time trial by 14 seconds over Magnus Court, but he finishes... Egan Bernal's the next GC contender. He finishes a, a minute, 49 seconds back. Um, Moss had a, not even a terrible time trial, and he was over two minutes back. Finishes in the top 10 on the stage. So, and, and we saw, I mean, he was just commanding on those summit finishes in the third week. So this shows us, there's probably, there's, I mean, it just shows us definitively, there's nothing wrong, wrong with Roglic. He does not fade in Grand Tours. He was probably just maybe expending a little bit too much energy in, in the early goings at these Grand Tours. And, and a key thing to point out here is this doesn't mean guys who are losing time in the first week are like, it's some strategy. Roglic was still gaining time on people in the first week. He was just not expending unnecessary energy, pacing all day to pull back the break to then sprint for the, for the win. He was just letting the race come to him, and he would out-sprint the GC people with him when they were there. But he would not work all day to bring the to bring the gap back. It will be interesting to see if they keep using this strategy going forward, particularly at the tour next year when you have Tadej Pogacar there. It's a lot easier to play it cool at a race that Pogacar is not at because he can, you know, he can really rattle you. He's so good that if you if you can wonder, well, if we're not taking time on him now, is he just going to crush us in the time trial? So we'll have to see what happens. Now, judging with how good Roglic was on the climbs and the time trial at this Vuelta. I have a hard time imagining he would have been beaten by Pogacar in any of those time trials. And then it's hard to imagine Pogacar dropping him in any of those mountain stages. Um, unfortunately, we'll never know. It's, it's a shame we don't get that battle from the 2021 tour. But hopefully, we'll just have to hope we get it next year. But Roglic looks so strong at this Vuelta that um, it's hard to imagine him losing this Volta if Pogacar's here because he was just so good in the time trials. Um, the other big, the other big story from the Volta. So Lopez leaves the race after being dropped on stage 20. Um, this is absurd. He was in the top, he was, t- he was third overall. Even with the time he lost, the time gaps were so big. They were so astonishingly large at this Volta. Um, 10th place is Felix, Felix Grubschaut, a great result, by the way. He's 22 minutes back and he's 10th. So. Lopez just could have come in with the Bernal group. Um, Bernal finished sixth overall still, 13 minutes back. He probably would have finished top five. That, that's not a nothing result. And that's pretty, the team is really struggling. The team is like in, in, in the relegation zone. If they don't start scoring more World Tour points, they could be in big trouble. Um, which is why the, the dropout is so shocking. I feel like it's potentially being undersold. A lot of the media is saying, well, he didn't feel like continuing. He was upset he was dropped. He was mad at the team. That's his right to drop out. That sh- it sure is, but it's also the team's right to never race you again or to, or to move to fire you. He just t- signed a tier contract extension, which I'm sure the team is regretting now. Um, but you know, they've come out and said they're, gonna try, they're not going to make anyone race for them that, that doesn't want to race for them. And they're going to look to get rid of, to terminate that contract and to move him as quickly as possible. I think that I, I totally agree with that. I mean, how could you ever take him to another race of importance again in anything outside of a domestique role? And we know he's not going to work as a domestique because they gave up, you know, Moss gets second. So potentially no harm, no foul. Was Moss ever going to beat Ruglitch? Probably not. But 
they definitely gave up chances. Uh, Enric Moss could not pick back, did not have a teammate to pick back Roglic when he got away on stage 17 because Lopez was in that group and Lopez wasn't going to work for Moss. He was not going to pace to pull back Roglic or Bernal. Well, that's, that, that's a big loss for a guy like Moss to not to have another leader in place of a guy just working for the team. Think of uh, how much different that is from Roglic, who Sepp Kuss is still finished ninth, eighth overall, but there was no point where Sepp Kuss was not going to set pace for Primus Roglic to preserve his own chances. Um, it just makes it a lot harder when you have to juggle two leaders. We saw this with Ineos. You know, that probably keeps Bernal off the podium because his, his teammate Adam Yates is also riding for himself. Um, and it, it's not just because of, you know, you have another teammate riding for themselves. It just chops the numbers down so quickly. So Movistar's down to five riders by the end. Okay, two of those are leaders. So that leaves three workers. And then if those three guys get dropped, you have no domestiques left for either of the two leaders. And we saw the disaster that can happen when Lopez gets distanced. If he had a domestique with him, he could have helped him pick that gap back and he wouldn't have lost all that time. So once a rider, I mean, I, I can't think, I guess even Mayo might've dropped out of a grand tour once because he was upset. I, I can't think of another example of a rider sitting third overall who just drops out for a non-physical reason on the 20th stage. You know, he just had to finish that stage and pedal through the time trial and he would have gotten a top 10 overall, which would have been huge for the team. The team needs those points desperately. So it breaks this trust with the team that can potentially never be rebuilt because, you know, Lopez is, is not on a great run at the moment. If you look at his, he's DNF'd three out of his four last Grand Tours. That's not great at all. I mean, you can't, the worst thing you can do is DNF because it robs the team of any ability to really harvest value from bringing you to the race or paying you your three million a year of salary. So, you know, the team's probably thinking, well, why, why give up a spot and devote all these resources to a rider who probably won't even finish the race if he's not feeling it? Um, Landa, Landa's actually flown under the radar here. He dropped out on stage 17 after attacking because he saw he wasn't going to be able to win a stage by himself, even though he had two teammates in the top five that finished in the top five. Um, that's, that's potentially even worse. We'll get to that in a second, though. But Lopez, um, yeah, I, I just, the trust is broken to a point where I don't think you could ever take him to a race again. I mean, I don't know if I was a team manager. I don't know how I would ever race him again. Um, that's so bad to drop out of a race, especially when you're sitting that high up. Um, they'll probably cut him. I, I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, a lot of these contracts really aren't worth the paper they're written on. So I doubt they'll have a problem getting off the contract. Um, potentially they could sell the contract to another team. A lot of this is not as, uh, as official as a lot of other sports. So you know, I wouldn't be shocked if he ends up back at Astana. I know Astana was not happy to lose him. Um, Vinokurov really wanted to keep him. The Canadian consortium who was running the team at the time last year um, let him slip away. So now that Vinokurov has pushed the Canadians out and is running that team again, I could absolutely see him just re-signing Lopez. Um, I could also see Lopez. Lopez has track written all over him. Expensive, doesn't win a lot. Um, kind of a paper tiger of a GC contender. That's perfect for Trek. Um, that actually fits so, so well for them. But at the same time, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, Movistar, 
I, I'm wondering about the ulterior motives here. Movistar signed Lopez probably because they considered him a GC contender. It's clear now that Moss is the team's best GC contender as far as consistency and ability to ride over like a wide variety of train. Um, if you just look at Lopez, you know, if you step back and really think about what he brings to the team, he wins one major Grand Tour stage win a year on average, um, and he can finish in the top 10 of, of Grand Tour. And he, but he probably makes around 3 million euros a year. Probably a lot of that earning ability is because he's Colombian. And Movistar is really aggressive about expanding in South America. So the, the company, Movistar. So that's probably why he's valuable to the team. Um, that means he won't get paid as much if he goes to another team like Trek or Astana. But if you think about just from a pure results perspective, they must be looking at Jack Haig and Chino Mater and thinking, these guys are probably making 200,000 euros a year. And they're getting better results than Lopez. Mater's one, Mater won a stage of the Giro Italia, gets fifth at the Vuelta. Mater is not a big name. Um, he's definitely not a high, I doubt he's a uh, high maintenance rider. And he's outperforming Miguel Angel Lopez. I mean, he's definitely outperforming his teammate Mika Landa. Same thing with Jack Haig. So it wouldn't shock me if Movi starts thinking, oh man, we are just putting way too much money into this guy who we can't even count on to finish races and are potentially using this as an excuse to terminate the contract. So um, that, that's, I wouldn't be shocked if that's the case, that it's not, they're not just like, oh, can you believe that he quit on us? That they're seeing a, a kind of daylight here to distance themselves from a rider that I guarantee you Pachi Vila is, is not wild about. Who, and his, his influence in that team is growing um, quite a bit. Uh, so Landa, just to touch on Landa really quick, he's DNF'd his last two Grand Tours. This is not a great look for him. Bahrain brought him as a leader to the Giro. He, they brought him as a leader here. Crashes out of the Giro, not his, not his fault at all. Um, he drops out of this race, co- totally his fault. He was physically fine. He could have worked for Mater and Haig, but he just thought, man, I'm not going to win myself, so who cares? I'll just go home. Um, unfortunately for him, his team has been thriving in his absence. They get second at the Giro with Damiano Cruzo. They get third and fifth at the Vuelta with Jack Haig and Gino Mater. Um, all of these guys make far less than Mika Landa. Uh, they probably are f- much lower maintenance. The team is going to start asking, well, why are, why are we putting all these resources into Mika Landa? Like, we bring him to a Grand Tour. He demands all these things for himself. Let's just take other guys. We have guys in this team who are very strong who can get their own results. Um, the last time Jack Hay gets a result that Landa hasn't gotten in six seasons. So um, it, I think it's going to be very hard for him to reintegrate himself at that Bahrain team. When they have riders who can get the same results he was getting in his absolute prime for far, you know, far less money and far less headache, um, and now his teammates can't, he's signaled to his teammates that he will not work for them. Um, I think it's going to be tough for him to reintegrate at Bahrain. And that's potentially, it's not getting the attention that the Movistar Lopez situation is. That's potentially a worse situation. Um, it's really an indefensible reason to drop out of a race. The Hague and also the Hague and the Mater results make me wonder, what, what is a Grand Tour contender? Like um, we consider Adam Yates, Mika Landa, Miguelando Lopez, Nairo Quintana to be 
contenders and special and different than other riders in their team. But if you can have a rider like Gino Mater ride to fifth, kind of out of nowhere, Jack Haig to get a podium out of nowhere, how many of these domestiques are, are capable of these results? Um, odd Christian Eiking gets 11th at the, at the Vuelta. You know, he beats Steven Kreuzwick, who is a much bigger name. So it's, it's just, I wonder if it's time for teams to examine our, you know, if we just look objectively within our own ranks, you know, are, are the guys that are the GC contenders, are they only that because we're naming them that? And it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that we all ride for them. They get, you know, ninth overall. Could someone else in the squad be getting fourth overall? Um, I think that's potentially if a team really wanted to run things in a cost-effective way and kind of be, you know, punch above their weight, that just looking down their own roster and thinking, well, what would happen if we gave so-and-so a chance, you know? Jack Haig never got a chance on bike exchange because was, there was always the Yates twins. He goes to Bahrain. Now he's getting podiums. You know, I think, I think the Yates have one Grand Tour podium between them. So that's a great example right there of, you know, even a smart team like bike exchange can just have these like diamonds in the rough sitting there stuck behind under perennially underperforming Grand Tour contenders who are only in that position because they're so and so like so called so called grand tour contenders. So some uh, world championships come up uh, weekend after this upcoming weekend. Um, Wout Van Aert is 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 amazing right now. You know he was obviously great at the Tour de France. I didn't quite know how he would come out of that, but he is absolutely flying. He's won two stages so far at the Tour of Britain. He's beaten Julian Alaphilippe, kind of in his own game on on punchy uphill finishes. He's got to be your favorite if you're picking riders, but I would say kind of more, a little bit more dark horse favorites from the Benelux tour. Great race, by the way, all these races are great. It's a shame. They're kind of all together, like jammed together. Um, I don't really know how you'd fix that since the Vuelta is three weeks long. Benelux needed to finish about now. Tour of Britain has to finish this weekend because you can't go too close to the world championships or you're no longer effective as a preparation race, but yeah, maybe they could get shuffled out around the season more because these are the Benelux tour was was really an interesting race. I didn't get to watch a ton of it as it was going on. I had to go back and watch it. But Sonny Cabrelli is uh, obviously it was no secret of the tour that he was on form, but he didn't win a stage if you remember. But he just absolutely dominated this race. Um, he looks incredible, and with the worlds taking place over. Pretty much the same parkours as a lot of the Benelux tour. Um, he would be a great dark horse pick. Also, Matt Motorich, who won, I think, three stages of the tour, gets second overall. He looked incredible at that race as well. And kind of a super, super dark horse would be Victor Campanarts. Um, used to just kind of be a TT specialist. He was, he was not the best time trialist, though. So he got stuck in this point of his career where he was like great at getting fourth in TTs. He's really transformed himself into like a, a legitimate mass start racer who can get into breakaways and then make stuff happen once he's in there. Um, Tom Dumoulin looked pretty good at the Benelux tour on a course. I mean, that's not like courses that suit him incredibly well. Um, I don't know if he would win the world championships, but it definitely play a part in that, especially when he's on the same. Uh, it's not clear if Matthew Vanderpool is going to be there. He slipped a disc at the Olympic road race or Olympic mountain bike race. But if he is at that race um, and him and Tom Dumoulin are on the same team, that would be pretty interesting. 
All right. Well, that's it for for this episode. I did. I have an interview with uh, Tipco Silicon Valley bank writer Sarah Gigante, the Australian, 20-year-old Australian on that team. She won the Australian National Championships at 18 and then just moved to Europe by herself and has li- been living and racing there. She's going to Movistar next year with uh, kind of a, a sleeping giant team. They're going to have Annemiek van Vluten as well as her and Emma Nosgaard. So it could be a team to watch going forward in the coming seasons. I have an interview with her I'm going to publish as its own episode later this week. So keep an ear out for that. All right. Well, have a great week. And remember, sign up for that newsletter. Be on the peloton.substack.com if you want regular updates on race breakdowns. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye.